0: Avenue Q, Title of Show, How I Learned to Drive, Three Tall Women. What do these four shows have in common? Give up? It's the Vineyard Theater in New York where these shows and countless others have made their mark off-Broadway before going on to success on Broadway, across the country, and around the world. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, executive director of the American Theater Wing, and we're joined today by the Vineyard Theater's longtime artistic director, Douglas Abel. Hi, Doug. Hi, thanks for having me. I guess let's start with Avenue Q, which is drawing to a close after six-plus successful years Mm -hmm. on Broadway. When you first got involved and got the Vineyard involved in that project, do you have any anticipation of this kind
1: of run? Absolutely not. I mean, we loved the show. I, I um, thought of it as a really interesting, charming, eccentric, anarchic kind of piece of off off Broadway theater. Uh, I, I kind of reveled in its originality and its audacity. So, uh, I didn't. I didn't see it. I, I hoped very much, as with every show that I do, that it that it would do well. But uh, no, I didn't. Uh, so it's been quite gratifying.
0: And it was an interesting collaboration because there were commercial producers, mm-hmm. Kevin McCollum, Jeffrey Seller, mm-hmm. and Robin Goodman, who were already mm-hmm. attached to the show mm-hmm. and had actually been developing it. Mm-hmm. When it was done in your theater, it was a co production with the
1: new group. Exactly.
0: Tell me about how. How that all came together and, and I have to admit my own small piece which was it had also workshopped at the O'Neill Center back when I was there. So that had mm-hmm. even been part of the process.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I I think it was the first of many musical theater ventures that I've gotten involved with of, of a certain scale and grandeur in a difficult economic time where, you know, we're really looking to different kinds of models uh, to make uh, – to green light. Uh, uh, a major work and in this case um, I had been approached uh, first by I was friendly with a lot of the parties that you're talking about I, I knew Scott Elliott at New Group and Robin Goodman quite well and the other producers and uh, the commercial producers approached me uh, with the first draft of the show and a score and um, I really responded to it and really wanted uh, to do it and then uh, I had heard uh, that New Group was interested as well in doing it and when we put the budget together for the show we you know thought well let's let's try to find an interesting model where we can collaborate with a group of people and make this happen in the season that we wanted it to happen uh, and not have to spend you know 5 years uh, raising money as one often has to do for for a, a large work i know avenue Q seems intimate but it's a by vineyard standards it's a, it's a rather large show and i, I have to say it it, it It worked like a charm. Uh, We were – everyone dealt with each other very respectfully. I felt that the creative process was very well served. Uh, um, The commercial producers who I've worked with on some other stuff too uh, were extremely respectful uh, of the development of the show as as a nonprofit. I had a longstanding relationship with the O'Neill. I had co-produced a lot of things with Paulette Haupt at the music theater conference there. So I'd recommend it to them when we were looking for sort of a – a summer place to take it um, to go up there, and that worked out, you know, before the vineyard production. So it was it was kind of like a lot of, you know, it's not a it's not a huge community of people in New York who are very devoted to developing new musicals. They're, they're some of the same parties, and and uh, I, I think we all know each other and respect each other, and sometimes you just all have to gather together and and and, and make a project happen.
0: It was really interesting. I remember very clearly, once the show was a success at the Vineyard, there were a lot of people running around saying, they're moving this. This doesn't belong mm-hmm. on Broadway. How can you do it on Broadway? How, you know, the puppets are going to have to get bigger. Can you do all of that? Was there a concern for you that after what was a terrific success in your venue, that potentially the show might not live, obviously, hindsight is, is wonderful now, but... And would that reflect on the company if you had a show go to Broadway and not succeed?
1: Well, you know, at that time, I think it's around 2003 or four that we're talking about. Sadly, there was a real transition in the commercial theater. It seemed to me around that time, uh, commercial off-Broadway seemed to be on the wane. A lot of commercial producers were just not taking that risk because the numbers were not working out for them. Um, in in earlier years, uh, most shows that would transfer from a nonprofit theater like The Vineyard would go off-Broadway. The shows that you mentioned, Three Toll Women, um, How I Learned to Drive, Lady Day was another one, Cobblin Market. We, we had four that moved on to commercial productions off-Broadway. But around that time, it was becoming more difficult, uh, particularly with a musical. And the theater that the producers uh, decided to go into was – you know, very modest size. In fact, I, I believe, I may be wrong, that the actual proportions of the Vineyard stage were wider than the John Golden. They had to shrink they had to shrink the basic unit of the set down a little wow. bit. Um, and um, so it, it was a very very cozy fit. You know, I think if it had moved into Radio City Music Hall, it would have been a different story. And, you know, I really credit, um, you know, our partners on this show because they had, a, a, I think, a, a vision that it would work. And it was also you know a, a time in america was uh you know let's just say fairly early in the bush years and uh war beginning and I think you know uh the public was ready for for something this refreshing and it and it just clicked. What about
0: title of show, a mm-hmm. more recent transfer again, mm-hmm. as you say, seemingly a show that in another era would have transferred to mm-hmm the Variety Arts or, you know, one of those kind of venues or West Side Arts. And and that very intimate show mm-hmm. did move to Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: what was your reaction to that move? Well, it was a very positive reaction. First of all, it was a source of pride that the show moved. And, um, you know, we I think everybody working on it knew that it was a challenge. It was a very, very modest little show, um, um, I thought it worked very well in the theater that they moved it to, and audiences loved it. It was just, you know, it was was tough. And um, um, but, you know, some of the theaters that you just mentioned don't exist anymore. There, there are not many really workable commercial off-Broadway spaces, uh, you know, for musicals. A lot of the great ones are gone now, like the Promenade. variety arts, et cetera. So the options are fairly limited and I think in this case, uh, the commercial producers, you know, and Kevin McCollum, who's the lead producer on it, uh, really had a dream of, of taking it to Broadway and, um, um, you know, you can argue back and forth about uh, how the numbers worked out, et cetera. But for me, it was a thrilling experience. I mean, mm-hmm. I loved seeing it there. It was a, it was a great kick. Uh, the whole show was sort of written and conceived around the notion of this hardy young group of talented people trying to bring their show to Broadway. So it really was ultimately the perfect final chapter for it. There was know. something
0: and very meta about it, the whole it was. thing,
1: and I, you know, in all my days of theater going, uh, I, I really was blown away by the reaction that it was getting in the theater. Uh, it was quite spectacular, and um, so. And I think that the show will have a, a, a real chance of a future life uh, in in venues around the country. It's getting a production, I believe, at the Signature Theater in Virginia this season. And it will be very interesting to see a meta show. That, I love that word. It's so bizarre. But <laughs> um, you know, a show in which people are playing themselves and, and making this move of having other actors portraying them. And I, I think it's going to have – you know, a significant future life. And I'm not sure that would have happened without the Broadway run because I think it, it elevated it.
0: It's, I mean, I wor- wonder and worry that those guys are going to keep writing new pieces for the show about now. Mm-hmm. We've gone to these regional theaters. Well, and I, could... I
1: believe they're already working on something new. That they, they, I mean, a new show. not, a, <laughs> oh, not, 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 not a, <laughs> Okay, so they, they've truly moved yeah. on now. But they really are, you know, they're just an enchanting group of people. And we did the show twice, actually, at our theater. We brought it back and part of it was just... Um, their charm and spirit—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not an act. It's them, and you—you you just want to hang out backstage with them. And and uh, although every time you hang out with them, you then <laughs> you run the risk of like whatever you say ends up in the show a few weeks it's later. It's like dating so. a
0: stand-up comic. Yes, yeah. yes.
1: It was. It was. Uh, I remember escorting uh, the late Kitty Carlisle Hart uh, backstage after the show and talking to the cast. And lo and behold, that scene made it to Broadway. <laughs> um, which was a kind of a nice tribute to her as well.
0: <laughs> We're talking about productions at the vineyards, but let's take a moment to talk specifically about the vineyard because many people may not have been there. You're in a 125-seat house? Is that? Yeah, it's
1: about 130 seats. Yeah. Uh, it, it, um, as I said, it's actually a rather large stage. So I think people are always surprised uh, – People constantly say to me when they come to the theater and afterwards they go, "How, how many seats do you have?" About three or four hundred, and I, I'm, I think it it's well that was with my reaction. I
0: was actually surprised yes. when I saw a seat count because yes. my impression yes. had always been that, that it was a larger. Yeah. theater. I mean,
1: it it could be. It actually, um, um, it's it's just the way the theater is configured now. And you know, we actually began in a much smaller house. I, I believe it was a 65 seat theater. You know, in the east side. Uh, so you know the the journey has been. Uh, um, been a slow journey from sixty to one hundred thirty,
0: maybe. But but you've you've been in that venue now for how long? You oh, I think it,
1: it's it's I think it's probably um, nineteen or twenty years. We we uh, the the theater was founded originally by Barbara and Krieger in, in a small theater, uh, sort of a basement theater on East Twenty Sixth Street, and um, after a couple of years and some early success, uh, Barbara felt strongly, and I. I you know, concurred that we in order for the vineyard to really establish itself, it needed a, a a more appropriate venue. And um, you know, in a kind of remarkable effort, she uh was able to convince uh William Zeckendorf, who was trying to build a tower in Union Square and I believe at the time had some community opposition to it, um, to create a space in the basement for, for Vineyard, which which had a lot of support in that area. And uh, so that's how it came about. Mm-hmm.
0: Certainly, there have been off-Broadway companies that we've seen grow, Manhattan Theater mm-hmm. Club from East 73rd Street to City Center to Broadway, the mm-hmm. Roundabout from 28th Street to 23rd Street to Union Square to mm-hmm. the Criterion Center now. You said it's been eighteen to twenty years in this same venue. Is is have you simply found a level that you are comfortable with, or is there a desire for there to be more physical growth?
1: Oh, there, I think there's definitely desire uh, for more physical growth. You know, it's it's a. Challenging real estate market right now, and and challenging times. We've, you know, I've been we've been keeping our uh, eye out uh, for some additional space. Not necessarily for a bigger theater. I, one the thing that I, I love the theater space in our theater. Uh, it, it it affords both a kind of intimacy and grandeur. So it's you know that's less of an issue. What we what we find is that we're um, constantly renting space. We do a tremendous amount of developmental work, workshops, and readings, and sort of. Uh, Developing projects a little bit like uh, I don't want to say under the radar, but you know, a, a lot of private work uh, to to help writers and directors you know find their path with a show, and we're constantly um, um, lacking space for that. We're kind of bursting at the seams. So you know, I think my I think my dream would be a really wonderful alternative space, you know, second stage um, and uh, um, a series of rehearsal rooms. And we've been looking, you know, we we really have been and. Hopefully, in the next three to five years, that'll be a reality.
0: Is there a particular aesthetic that you look for in work or that you try to follow? If, if I were going to say, what's a vineyard show, could you answer me?
1: It's, it's, it's such a difficult question to answer. I'm asked it all the time, and I'm asked to describe it in you know uh, grant applications <laughs> to foundations and such, and I, I – um, um, the cheesy answer would be to say, you know, you, I know it when I see it. Uh, well, but that's but, pornography. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> you said it, Howard, <laughs> not me. <laughs> but um, I, I think for me, um, what I really look for is uh, a writer or a group of writers who are very adventurous in spirit, who... Um, um, I, I kind of look for work that's that moves me and reaches me on a both personal and a political level. I like I like theater that uh, delves with powerful issues and takes chances and 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 provokes people to think. And I like a theatrical experience, you know, to move me to tears and make me laugh and cry. So I really look for uh, a genuinely unique voice. Um, I I. Um, and in the musical theater as well, I really, you know, I think it's it's such a wonderful playpan of the imagination. There's so many ways that you can sort of uh, move the boundaries of it and and invite artists in who maybe um, um, haven't played by the old rules about how to make a musical. Let's say um, and. Um, so for me, it's really finding a distinctive voice and nurturing it, and and finding sort of the joy and fun in taking a project in its infancy, supporting it, nurturing it, and then taking a chance and really bringing it to life. Um, we do a lot of developmental work in my theater, but we don't development develop pieces to death. I think that's a a, a very painful cycle. Often for writers, where they have to spend you know three to five to seven to ten years trying to convince an artistic director to produce their work. So while I, I set a very personal uh, program to work with a, a writer on, on getting the play or the musical where I want it to be or they want it to be, I should say um, I like to really set you know a year or two as a goal if I if I want to proceed with the show, so that we really we're we're not just about uh, um, um, a cycle of pecking away at a project, but of really putting ourselves out there and, and putting it on the stage um, and I, I think we 're living in a great era actually of of uh, a wealth of young writers who are risk takers um, who are not just writing plays that sound like screenplays or television dramas but are, are really um, Interested in language and interested in, in experimental theater forms. So I think I think it's a very vibrant time. I, I'm I'm very encouraged by that. Um, I, when I said to you, I, I I know it when I see it. I, I, I wasn't really being facetious. I think that for me. Um, it strikes me as interesting that just many people come to our theater a lot and some of them love our work, some of them sometimes hate our work because it 's you know admittedly it 's out there but there 's this sense of people knowing when they come to our theater that I guess that they can' expect the unexpected they 're not going to see the same kind of play every time and and um, um, and I totally respect by the way that there are theater companies that sort of build their body of work around a certain aesthetic that 's absolutely appropriate i i um, Years ago, actually, when I first came to New York, one of the things that I did was I was an s- intern, a script reader for Circle Rep, which was you know, a really great theater company that I, I think is uh, much missed. Um, and there was a definite aesthetic to the work, you know, th- that was done there. Absolutely. There was a kind of lyric naturalism, a lot of plays that dealt with family issues, a lot of kitchen sinks, a lot of porches. And a
0: family of playwrights who yeah, yes, so you could ex- count on ex- seeing ex- exactly, exactly, every year,
1: every exactly. couple of years. And I. I and I, what I, what I glean from that, and I think i 've tried to continue my work is I, I do believe in a long term commitment to writers and directors that I love and, and trust i 'm um, in it for the long haul. I like to build a relationship with an artist so the artist can you know, come to me with a work and we can do it and if if it doesn 't work out for whatever reason. They know that they can come to me a year or two later with another work, and my door is open. And um, so that I think is very important. But I think I've just I've just uh, maybe I have a short attention span. But I've I've always been attracted to diversity in programming and and really trying to keep a step ahead of of the audience and of myself in a way. And sometimes I do shows just on a on a kind of dare, you know, yeah. where I go. I wonder whether I can pull this off. I wonder whether people like it or they'll think I'm crazy. And and uh, um, I think that's a. You asked about expansion, and I think that one of the nice things about running a sort of moderately sized theater and not a huge institution is that you're you're you're. You're playing in a big arena, New York City, uh, with first rate artists, but it's on a level that you can take those chances and you can read something that's interesting and flawed and worthy and say, you know what, let's give this a shot. Let's try it.
0: It strikes me that there are two models of artistic directors. There are artistic directors who put themselves very forward. And there are artistic directors who put the work forward. And I, in my estimate, would say you fall into the latter category. We don't see lots – we don't see your face adorning the brochures necessarily. And so I'd like to
1: know a little more about you. Mm-hmm. When did uh, your interest in theater first get sparked? Well, it sparked in childhood. I guess I have to give credit to my dad who grew up on Long Island and my father worked in you know the garment industry and – was not a theater person at all but he was I, I, I guess in retrospect now we'd use that phrase show queen. I, that wasn't what was said in the 1960s about a World War II veteran but he was obsessed with musicals and he went to every flop Broadway show a lot of times bringing you know customers with him to see it and he would take me along just to take me along. There's a the name of the <laughs> show. So. But, but, it was um, a hit though, yeah, actually and, in the right. first run around. And, and we used to he used to buy the cast albums and play them at home. And as a little boy I remember I I um I had no sense of like that certain shows were flops or hits. Do you know what I mean? Like, like we would play a cast album of a of a show that was probably a complete failure. But I thought the songs were all famous, that they were standards because my dad would play the album. So that that's sort of what what, what kicked it in a bit, I think. And um, um in, in high school and college, I had a lot of interest. I, I had a knack for directing. I was a pretty good actor. I, I had a, you know kind of a, a interest in exploring different avenues of it. And um, um, coming out of college, um, I came to New York. Well, did you go to school for theater? No, I went, I went to a, a college uh, – I went to Vassar, which is you know slightly outside of New York, and uh, I actually chose not to be a drama major there. I did like an independent major, but I was I was sort of the I guess, I guess this is a tells you where I was headed. I was kind of like the the bad boy who staged productions in weird venues away from the drama department. So I you've got to tell me yeah. wh- what was your independent major? Oh, I did like an independent like dramatic literature major. Like I kind of bridged the the okay. English department that that kind of thing. Um, And it was fun actually. We recently were working on a show, not to digress, but we're working on a show that we're co-producing with Playwrights Horizons called The Burnt Part Boys. And it was just – we just took it up to New York stage and filmed to Vassar. And I, I remember going up to a um um rehearsal in this big hall and realizing that like it, I had acted in a musical there. You know, and it was just, <laughs> it's just a very strange thing to be haunted by your your past. Um so anyway, I, I I came to New York, uh, you know, not as a trust fund baby and, and not knowing any you know celebrities or, or notable theater people, and um, I just jumped in as as you do when you you, you want to make your mark. And what I did was I just volunteered as an intern at a bunch of different theaters. Um, I, I kind of uh, I did it in a very diligent way. I like picked four or five theaters and I worked three hours at one, then I would run cross town three hours in another. So I, I would do these like 12-hour days. And so I was, I was, you know, reading scripts at Circle Rep, doing some office work at Circle in the Square, reading scripts uh, at Playwrights Horizons uh, for, for um, Andre Bishop at the time. And, uh, you know, I was kind of all over the place, Ensemble Studio Theater. And, and it, 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 it was a way to just begin the networking process and to kind of figure out what I wanted to do.
0: And so, how does that get you to the vineyard?
1: Well, I um, the journey—it's <laughs> it's kind of interesting, uh, or maybe it isn't. I don't know. Um, I I did I did that for about a year or two, and I was doing all kinds of crazy survival jobs. You know, I was working for an ad agency, judging. New York Post contests and stuff like that—really, really really the kind of crazy things that you do. Um, And I was getting a little bit of freelance work as a casting assistant. Um, I was doing uh, um, at Theater Communications Group for one summer and uh, um, Ensemble Studio Theater as well. And I took a job for a season at Manhattan Theater Club as a development assistant, which is fundraising. But it was just—I kind of needed a. Job, job, you know, and uh, that—that was what was offered to me. And Hmm. um, my um, the person I was working for was a a producer, then became a producer. His name is Dion Demai, and and I worked there for about a year and and learned a lot. Learned how to write a grant, which is a valuable thing for any fledgling artistic director to do. Um, And. she decided to leave after about a year to pursue a freelance producing career. And I had sort of decided after that year, you know, that my future, you know, wasn't going to be in development. And she mentioned to me, oh, I have a friend named Barbara who's trying to get a new, a new theater that's just, you know, that she's just started off the ground called Vineyard. And so I met Barbara. I was a lovely and bright person. And it was like yet another um, small emerging group. I read some scripts for her. I helped her out in the office. It was just one of my 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 collection of Your vast little portfolios, right? Yes. Right, and it started to take off. I, I, and and we just had a very good chemistry. Um, her original concept was she she envisioned it as a sort of mini cultural center with you know mu- a classical music program, a jazz program, theater, opera, all in this little venue on East Twenty Sixth Street, uh, and. Uh, so I was working with her uh, for a couple of seasons, you know, reading scripts as a sort of associate, while continuing at other places, you know, mm. and I was directing shows at Ensemble Studio Theater and, and elsewhere. And um, after about a couple of seasons, it just seemed like the theater part of Vineyard was beginning to take off, and um, you know, I kind of cast my lot with that mm. a bit well, more.
0: Fairly early in the theater's history, mm-hmm. Lady Day at Emerson's right. Bar and Grill went on to right. a, a strong and long right. commercial run. Right. So I imagine that was was the first big boost.
1: Well, we 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 kind of had and and when Goblin
0: Market yeah, went right around there, we at the had same a time. splash,
1: I think it was like the second or third year, you know, that I I was working with Barbara that these two really unusual and interesting music theater pieces both caught the public's eye and both transferred to uh, commercial runs, one at the Circle in the Square and one at the West Side Theater. And that was really quite remarkable. We were really I'm telling you the, the budgets for those early shows were, you know, I won't say $1.98, but they were they were extremely modest and it was a tiny little showcase space. Um, so yeah, that it 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 kind of kicked in.
0: So at what point did you go from helping to being staff to being – obviously this was Barbara's Theater. Was she mm-hmm. the person who ultimately said, look, you're now the artistic director?
1: Uh, it, it happened gradually. She actually – originally she started at um, – she was the artistic director for the first season or two and then she reformulated a bit where she named four or five people artistic directors of each discipline. Like there was an artistic director for opera for jazz, for chamber music. It, it sounds really lofty. It's amazing. It was this little tiny space. And uh, I can't remember which season that was. But that at that point, she said to me, Doug, why don't you, why don't you run the, the theater program, which was really just one or two shows a year. And I was still working at Ensemble Studio Theater at that time. Um, I was directing quite a bit there. And uh, so I said, that'd be great. That'd be wonderful. Here I was, you know, uh, 20-something and, and having that – that title, she was still very much leading the organization, and um, it just it just gradually, you know, it, it became a really meaningful part of my life, and uh, you know, I followed it through.
0: You mentioned that you had done some casting assistant work, and this seems a good moment to mm-hmm. acknowledge that you actually have a dual career. I do. You have a thriving career as a casting director for films. Yes. In addition to being the artistic director at uh, at the Vineyard. Now, were you doing casting at the Vineyard in mm-hmm. at this time? Was that part of your portfolio?
1: Well, I I, um, I would say that uh, my my first experience with casting was actually at um, as I mentioned, TCG used to have in those days. It was kind of wonderful. They had a casting service for all the regional theaters across the country, and it was a, it was a major stop for actors. You know that that a lot of these regional theaters would use the in-house casting office at TCG to cast their season. Um, and, you know, a lot of us got our start there. I believe Daniel Swee was there for a while, who's now doing casting at, at Lincoln Center and elsewhere. Um, so I, I think that was there where I was, you know, I, I had a summer gig there, you know, a, a assisting the casting director. And, and I'd always had a knack for it. I'd always had a, a love of actors and, a, you know, a, a feel for it. And um, I was doing a lot of – a little bit of freelance casting. Again, partly to make a living. I was casting for a uh, downtown theater at the time called The Open Space, which uh, uh, a wonderful lady named Lynn Michaels is no longer with us, was running. And I was you know, doing, doing freelance casting. I cast a couple of the early marathons at EST. The great thing at Ensemble Studio Theater at that time, it was a great like entry-level place, you know um, – the late Kurt Dempster would, you know, if he thought you were talented or special, he would like give you a title. You could be called producer or <laughs> casting director, even though you were 20 years old, and um, get to really cut your teeth. So uh, it was those kinds of places that I, you know, first got involved with it, and and actually it was a contact with John Shanley, who I had gotten to know at MTC. Um, Believe it or not, when I worked at MTC, he was he was the house manager there.
0: <laughs> We've spoken and, about that. Yes,
1: yes, and he showed me some of his early plays, and I directed. And
0: Lynn never wanted to read them then, <laughs> right? And
1: and I, I I directed an early one at EST, and and uh, you know got to know him. And then when I started working with Barbara at the Vineyard, um, John had a, a comedy called Rockaway that um, I talked Barbara into doing, and it was I think the first first show that I felt like I was creatively involved with at the vineyard and I guess John was impressed that you know we got this kind of great cast of old character actors in this little bitty theater I think like Orson Bean was in it and a couple of other people like that and so some years later um, John actually recommended me to uh, a director a film director named Tony Bill who was had just bought John's first screenplay which was called five corners uh, it, it was kind of the year before he did moonstruck and Tony, He's really a, a wonderful man, uh, uh, entrepreneur and filmmaker and producer. Produced The
0: Sting, if I remember
1: correctly. I, 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 I think he did um, – he did a whole whole bunch yeah. of things. My Bodyguard was one that he did. Yeah. Um, in any event, he just decided that he wanted to bring a fresh young theater team onto this movie. He hired Adrian Lobel, who's a noted set designer, to be the production designer. And he interviewed me and he, he – Hired me, and uh, so that was the. I I was, you know, again in my twenties and um, not that experienced, and I got this opportunity, and that 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 led to a lot of other things. I met Tim Rob. I cast Tim Robbins as one of his early films in that uh, film, and then a couple of years later, Tim asked me to cast his movie Bob Roberts, and then. later Dead Men Walking and Cradle of Rock. So, you know, it all <laughs> – it is interesting in a way. I have to thank MTC in a sense for the fact that um, my entree both into connecting with what then became the Vineyard Theater and my work in casting came through just people that I met there.
0: Hmm. But at the Vineyard, mm-hmm. did you – in those early years, were you casting oh, yes, shows? Oh, yes, You were directing yes. shows. I was directing. Do you cast your own shows?
1: Um, it, it depended on which one, and I, I was I was kind of trying to, you know, it was a sh- it was showcase theater time. So you you kind of did everything. You, you mm-hmm. took out the garbage. You uh, you you uh, uh, clean the theater before the night the critics came, and you 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 cast your own shows. Um, um, so yes, and um, um, what I found as as the theater developed and grew, and we really were moving to a higher level that. Um, I really wanted to either wear a separate hat when I was directing or when I was producing and then I, I didn't want to be solely responsible for casting a show. Um, so um, through the years I've worked with different casting directors on, on theater. And I, I have to say that you know, um, I've sort of kept the two the two things quite separate in part because well, theater casting is really hard, especially in a tough economy, especially when you have a play filled with, you know, People who might, you know, normally would be in Los Angeles on a television series or, or so on and so forth. Um, so it's a real challenge. And um, I, I, uh, I've, I've tried to kind of build a little bit of a wall between the two, but there's certainly a great deal of interaction. And part of my pleasure in working in film casting is if I can be an advocate for New York stage actors and really introduce them to a film director who may not know them and actually take a chance on really. Um, giving them the opportunity to to take on a major role. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's come back specifically to the vineyard. Um, we talked a little bit. You were talking about Circle Rep and about the family that was there. Um, I don't think we've really touched yet on those particular writers that that you would consider part of the vineyard family. I mean, I I see Paula Vogel, Nikki Silver. Yeah. I mean, how did those relationships develop? Um, a lot of who did I miss?
1: Right. Well, there's so there. It's it's a pretty large family. I Also, like I like to be an inclusive family. I I would add to my comment that I like to be in there for the long haul with the writer. That I also like to make a point at least every season to have a completely fresh newcomer. Given a main stage show at the Vineyard, I think that's very important. Um, we had this great joy last season of producing this kind of epic work called "Wig Out" by Terrell McCraney that Tina Landau directed. That was kind of an a, explosive and eccentric piece of work, and and uh, we had we had first uh, uh, met Terrell through the work that he was doing at Yale as as, an, as a as a student, and and so I think that. Part of the joy of, of kind of building this family is that it's a diverse family that it includes veterans that it includes newcomers. Um, in addition, you know, like for every Paula Vogel, Nikki Silver, Jenny Schwartz, young writer that we we really liked and uh, did her play God's Ear, um, Craig Lucas, we've done a number of his plays. Um, I also really like to explore giving an opportunity to artists or writers who may not have really thought of the theater as their home. I did a couple of works with Cornelius Eady, a, a poet um, who had a, a love for theater, and we did uh, two projects of his, including a piece called "Brutal Imagination," um, which Diane Paulus directed, and recently a, a kind of crazy musical that I really loved doing called "The Slug Bears of Carroll Island" by Ben Catcher, who's a cartoonist. And his composer was a very you know well known um, um, alternative rock kind of person, and we're kind of outside of the the boundaries of like traditional theater. So I think there is a really warm sense of community at our theater, and people feel you know supported, hopefully and loved, and and encouraged to come back. But I like to keep in a way like um, um, the door open at all times, so that it's a it's a um, it's a it's a kind of Rich mix of young and old, and and uh, new and established. I've done shows with um, um, first time composer lyricists. Um, I directed and wrote a couple of shows with the late Bob Merrill, it was like a you know famous old Tin Pan Alley and Broadway composer. And there's a it's really an interesting experience. Uh, I'm. I'm um, um, some years ago we did a revival of Florida the Red Menace with John Cantor and Fred Ebb, and we're starting to work on a new piece. Actually it's the last piece that they completed before Fred passed away called the Scottsboro Boys. And we've been doing a series of readings and workshops with it with, with John. And I, I, I think it's a very you know, it's just a gratifying and interesting experience to kind of mix it up and 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 to work with a veteran who's done you know innumerable Broadway shows and worked in the commercial theater as well as nonprofit, and then and then work with somebody who's never done a play before. Hmm. But
0: presumably, or or many people who make the assumption at least with a hundred and twenty-five seat theater, when you go to some of these veterans, do you have to do a sell job? Certainly now into your history, maybe not, but do you have to convince them to come and work in a space
1: that? If
0: they were from the heyday of, right. of the classic Broadway musical, right. it's it's a really different scale.
1: I, I, I think um, to a certain extent, but you know, it's a really nice space. And I think people people like the space. I mean, that 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 has made it a real plus. And hopefully, after numer- you know many years of, of us being on the map and doing work. Um, you know, we're not, I never like to toot our own horn, but I feel like you know we've developed a reputation, hopefully, as a really good place to work with a, a smart and supportive staff and and a, and a loving spirit. It's not a theater with a lot of money, but it's a, a theater I'd like to think of a theater with a really great heart and. Um, that word of mouth hopefully spreads. So usually people come to me with projects or they hmm. feel that there's something really right for me. I've never been too good at at you know pitching ourselves, you know particularly I think what we've seen in the last few years in the nonprofit theater, and I think this is a, a positive thing, I'm not attacking it, but to a much greater extent, a lot of the larger institutions have Created sort of smaller developmental wings for their work. Uh, Lincoln Center has a you know
0: LCT three Lincoln Center the roundabout, roundabout underground exactly.
1: Sure. Uh, Manhattan Theater Club is doing a lot you know a, a lot of programming. This is all good. I think it's great for young writers. So. Hallelujah, but it means that a lot of times there is a lot more competition. Where a a young emerging writer who there's a good buzz about and has the right agent, will you know, will you know, maybe the the agent will call you and say, "This is a wonderful new play by somebody, you know, just out of grad school, but I have offers from three other bigger theaters to do it next month." So what do you say? (laughs) And my feeling is, you know, I can't compete with that, and I also feel like they're just, you know, I, I guess I just believe in karma, and I feel like the right project. Has to come along that I'm fired up about, and I have a passion about, and the writer is excited about working with me. So um, um, we've been blessed in a way. I know I'm sounding kind of Pollyannish about this, but we really, we we really feel like, by and large, you know the 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 right project has come at the right time with us. Hmm.
0: Having directed, having acted, doing the casting work, you having cleaned the theater. Um, <laughs> How do you personally how involved are you with the artists, and how directly involved are you on each show
1: i 'm I'm, I'm, I'm quite involved um, um, i don 't try to be overly involved but i i 'm very very hands on um, I think one of the reasons why you know I, I started out you know look you know exploring the idea of a freelance career in directing, and I, you know I did pretty well as a director. I think as the film work took off, that and running the theater just made it impossible for me to juggle all these all these things. And I, I, I began to find with certain theater directors that I loved and respected, and who liked and respected me, that um, I was able to bring my own creativity and my own whatever gifts that I have, if any you know, to the process and working with them. I'm a very result-oriented person. So I, I, I feel like – I always found as a director that my my greatest skills were when the show was put together and we were like teching it and previewing it and I could put my finger on what was right or wrong with, you know, a, a light cue or a performance or a, or a piece of scenery. And um, so I've, I've usually chosen directors who are fierce and independent but who really – Want the interaction from me, and I and I give it, you know. And, and um, I've, I, as I said, I've been blessed through the years with directors like Mark Brokaw, Tina Landau, the late Andre Arnott who was just a brilliant director who I miss very much. Who you know, we just we just had a really lovely interaction, and and for me, that's part of the fun too of of nurturing a show from the get go and making the right choices with it, making the wrong choices with it sometimes. And um, you know, really being around, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I kind of throw my heart and soul into a new show when it's in development, when it's in previews. I'm there at all the previews. Once the show opens, I, I kind of have to say my farewell to it. It's, I know it it, it seems strange, but it's almost like your child is graduated from school and it it has to, you know, take its own steps by itself. And it's not that I lose interest in it, but in a way I have to move on to the next thing once it's, once it's launched.
0: question I wish I could ask every artistic director, is there in all of the years of the shows you've done a show you would like to do again and why?
1: Yeah, I think there there are a couple. Um, Well, occasionally you do a show that you just feel like you didn't do the play justice. I won't, I won't name a play, but I have to say that, you know, hopefully
0: – See, I keep hoping someone will finally answer once, that question.
1: Hopefully one's track record, you know, um, you know. You you do a pretty good job of like mm-hmm. not torturing a play, but but actually making it better. But, you know, occasionally theater is very ephemeral and it's, it's all about alchemy and just sometimes it doesn't come together. Sometimes there's just a, a, a show that you fall in love with and that um, is – well enough received, but you don't feel fully got the attention. Uh, um, this is a show that I really adored uh, that Polly Penn wrote, Andrea not directed, called Christine Alberta's Father. It was based on an H. G. Wells novel, and it was a mad, eccentric journey about a, a, a laundryman in in you know the 1900s or turn of the century. Who, actually, it was 1912. Who uh, goes mad and? Moves to London, believing that he's the reincarnation of a Sumerian king, and and it's sort of like a Don Quixote story about a little man who tries to uh, uh, develop followers, you know. Hmm. And uh, it, it was a, a very bittersweet and lovely show. I just I just loved it, and it, it did well enough. It it, it was it was well received. It maybe it wasn't Broadway fair but um, I think it had some very important a very important message and a, a, a lot of important things to say. And it's it's one that I I, I would love to do a, again. You know, sometimes you just We recently had a 25th anniversary and um, we did a couple of reunion readings of of shows that had done well and and that's always really fun. We did a reunion reading of the original cast of Goblin Market and and, – which was spectacular and uh, uh, a reunion of – reading of Nikki Silver's play Raised in Captivity, which, which, which went really well. Um, but I'm always torn about that kind of thing because I really like to work on new things, and um, it's it's hard to go back home. And sometimes when a a journey is a gratifying one, you don't want to try to like relive it, and then it it you know it doesn't live up to what it what it was. I'm much happier when like a play that we develop then gets productions elsewhere, and you can look at it with a different group of people doing it. Hmm.
0: Are there particular projects that are in development now? You mentioned the candor and Ebb show. certainly you have your upcoming 09, right. 10 season, but are there things that are on the horizon at at the vineyard
1: yeah well i mean the the, the, the we're, we're kind of busily putting you know the next year together it's uh um we're working on a new play with Adam Rap uh, called The Metal Children, which we we actually did like a developmental lab of about a year ago. A very timely and I think provocative play. I should stop that word provocative. It comes out of my mouth all the time, and I always feel like I'm sounding like a you know publicity brochure. Uh, but it really is a provocative play, I have to say. Um, and um, working with Kander Neb on on I shouldn't say working with Cander Neb, but in a sense, I feel like he's around. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, his presence is 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 in the room, and that's been a, a wonderful experience. Um, when we did the revival of Flora of the Red Menace*, was again one of an early show that I did. Um, I think it was actually uh, Scott Ellison, Susan Stroman's first directing and choreographing job in New York, and it was a sort of revisitation of, of a show of *Cantor and Ebbs that had failed on Broadway years before. And um, here it is, you know, 20 years later, and a lot of that group is together again, and also the book writer, David Thompson. And uh, it's, been, it's been really joyous and fun. And I, think it's a, I, I think it's a very powerful and interesting piece of theater. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: you made a comment earlier that you tried to keep the, your, your, your film world and your theater world separate, though you're always advocating for theater actors mm-hmm. to be taken up and and seen by film directors, is that a two-way street? Does it give you the opportunity to attract or, or uh, proselytize for theater mm-hmm. among people who may be primarily
1: film-oriented? Oh, abs- absolutely. And I think it's – I think the I think that two universes. I, I think the um, separation is breaking a little bit in our in our internet age, and um, I just even think in terms of like the life and career choices of actors. It's when I first started in New York. You really, you know, when a young actor graduated from school, and they really had to make a choice of like, do I go to Los Angeles and make money, or do I starve and become a great stage actor in New York? Well, I think it's I I I think there's a way to interact in both universes uh, as a performer and a, a lot of the almost all the playwrights that I know you know are are making a living partly through film and television work and that doesn't mean that they can't continue writing plays so I think I think that has has loosened up I, I've always found it interesting working you know uh, from the casting perspective on, on a film a lot of the directors I work with are also the screenwriters you know th- it's much more much more common in film for there to be a, a film written and directed by one person, and very uncommon in theater for that to happen. And a lot of the the film directors I work with, they're they're kind of like film geeks. You know, they're they've been obsessed with film their whole lives. I guess I guess there's the phrase "film geek" in theater and show queen. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a mean <laughs> uh, phrasing. Um, And uh, they're fascinated by theater. They don't get it. They just think it's so – I mean like when I talk to the directors about what I do, they're just – for instance, um, a lot of what I do do in film casting because I'm – because of my theater background, um, I read with all the actors who audition for film and put them on tape for the actors to see. And a lot of times I have to coach – you know, work with the actors on a difficult scene and – and and rehearse a bit. And most of the film directors I work with don't like to rehearse at all. Like they, some do. I mean, I, I won't say all of them, but many of them um, are really about just finding the spontaneity in the moment with an actor on the set. It's, they're just they're just fascinated, slightly weirded out, and amazed that like theater directors spend five weeks in a room with a group of actors, you know, f- discovering the truth of a moment or a line. They're they're it's it's a bit alien to them. A lot of them, you know. Have just ex- expressed interest and wanted to like sit in and see what that's what that's about you know so in a, in a way it is they're like they're related art forms and there's definitely a lot of the films I work on are indies and you know are 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 are, are not huge studio movies so there's it's there's sort of an off broadway spirit to it and yet they 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 see it as this like interesting alien thing that they they're intrigued by and don't really understand so I guess hopefully I can try to bridge that a lot of times it's my about my inviting them to see the uh, to see the shows
0: and what about an actor's ability to go back and forth between the mediums is that do you find that that's not really an issue or are there people who really I think know how to do theater or know how to do film but can't do both
1: I think that um, finally, among the younger generation of actors, especially the ones coming out of conservati- conservatories like you – know, or programs like Juilliard or NYU. Finally, I think the programs have really provided you know, support and training for the actors to understand how to work in film and audition for it and stuff. I think that – again, I go back to when I started out. I felt like a lot of the conservatory-trained actors needed to sort of unlearn some of their great technique. To just learn how to be simple and real in front of a camera, and a lot of a lot of repertory actors, for one of a better word, you know, actors who've cut their teeth in regional theater and have great technique, would sometimes say to me, "I have difficulty just kind of bringing it down." For one of a better phrase for the camera, I think that's getting better, and I think, and I think, and I think what has also helped, frankly, is that. Uh, there's been a lot more television production in New York. All the Law and Order franchise shows. So a lot of veteran actors who aren't really film actors if you just have just had that opportunity uh, to play lawyers and judges and criminals and victims on these shows, and you know have, in a sense, sometimes at a at a late age, advanced age, have sort of figured out how to how to work in front of the camera, which is its own particular skill.
0: Before we wrap up. We sort of started with the growth of the vineyard and even new opportunities for the vineyard. But um, are there other things you hope for for the vineyard? Are there things you'd like to see happening there five, ten years down the line?
1: For the vineyard or just for, the overall for theater the vineyard. community? I, absolutely. I but, mean, but
0: if there's something you do, want to say about the theater community, uh, go oh ahead. Oh,
1: boy, do I ever. I need another hour for that, wouldn't I? Um, well, I think of the vineyard, like we, we we're really – expanding our educational program. Um, we have a fantastic program geared toward, that began out of a relationship with our local public high school, which had like literally no arts program. And we created a way to interact with our artists, with with these really worthy, needy kids. And it's been really great. So we really would like to expand that, I think. And, and um, as I said, I have a great desire to be able to expand and find a second space and actually just the funding to do uh, more shows. We basically can find a way to do maybe three three or four new projects a year and we really would love to be able to expand that. In a sense, I feel like we have all these – Interesting projects, sort of like the jet plane circling the uh, the you're, airport, and, and you, not able to but land. But unfortunately,
0: you are LaGuardia, so right? And right, you're a well, LaGuardia, up. not JFK, right,
1: or, or something bigger. So, so that's a that's a real uh, a, a real desire. Um, and I think you know, I guess, I guess, um, I think there are incredible opportunities uh, for us and for other theaters with the new technology and with the internet and with all you know. All, all of the various means of communication that have just exploded in the last few years, but with it has also become a real challenge. You know, we haven't talked about, we haven't used that word critics in this conversation, and I, you know, which is fine. But um, something that I've seen in, in recent years, I think, has been very challenging, is is with the rise of uh, uh, blogs and chat rooms and that sort of thing. Um, I'm finding more and more that it's very challenging to develop a new piece in New York, where 10 or 15 years ago you could do a reading of a new player musical, you could have a rocky preview period, and every show pretty much has a rocky preview period. And if you were a relatively small theater, you know, that was that. And now you're, we're living in a new age, for better or worse, where you can have a closed reading of a new play and the next day someone has written a review of it on the internet. And you, and or you, they're twittering during right, it. Right, and Exactly, exactly. So boo-hoo-hoo. I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. It's, it's what it is. But I wish that there was a way to monitor it. And my, my own desire would be to force some of the chat rooms to make people use their real names. Hmm. I think you get a lot more honesty if somebody actually, if they had something to say about something – said who they were. Um, um, and uh, there's a wonderful moment in the title of show, I think, where they they read one of the a vicious attack on their show in development it's signed like Sweeney Lover12 or something like that. Um, so I, I think that's that's a challenge for us uh, to face for those of us who develop new work um, in New York, which is a, a, a very um, um, it 's sort of a cauldron of activity, and ev- all eyes are on on work and I think that 's a real real challenge to find new models of ways of developing new plays and musicals before they 're ready to be judged to not be judged that 's something mm-hmm. we 've got to really figure out in in the next decade
0: wow yeah. you almost feel like you have to go into witness protection to.
1: Well, you, you maybe need to get far away from New York. <laughs> Yet, in this, you know, we <laughs> which, see we see right. so
0: many shows developed on the West Coast, and immediately right, again right. in chat rooms on on all of these things. There's always someone. We see columns right. written by. You know, people saying, you know, my sources tell me.
1: Right. And I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that that – I don't think this kind of stuff really has an impact on box office or, you know, the general public. Uh, sadly, something that just has an impact on the artists working on a show, you know, because they're human. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's tough. And they can't help themselves. They um, see this stuff. Um, you know, my, my – it, it's tough to have an experience where you know somebody is saying something about you and not saying who they are before you've even had your 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 first run through um and i i, I I've heard this a lot from some of my fellow artistic directors and I think it's um, um, it, it's not something so much to whine about as I think to really think about you know to think about i mean there's like etiquette about all of this that we haven't figured out even to the point of like a generation of kids you know who Think they should be yelling really loudly into their cell phones during a movie? No, mm-hmm. it's not their fault. Nobody's. Th- there have been no rule set for this. It just all sort of evolved over the last decade. So we have to figure it out.
0: So that's that's when you said, "Was I asking? mean I was I asking you about all of theater? That's that's your wish for theater at large. Well, that's only
1: one. I have well, g- a lot you more got a wishes. Of, well, we'll g- but, g- give, give us but, a couple more. You know. Um, um, I guess I, I guess I'm really hopeful about the future of theory. I mean, we always talk about you know um, the financial challenges and all of that, and yet I still feel that, um, particularly in a in a in a in a Facebook, Twitter, uh, uh, computer age, that there is something that people still hunger for in sharing the community of experience, especially if there's a really powerful issue and a very moving experience. Um, a few years ago, uh, where we hosted, there was a sort of controversy where a Connecticut high school um, was banned from putting on their play about the Iraq War, and a couple of the theaters, the Public Vineyard and and I think it was Culture Project, decided to give them our stages so that their work could be held. And what I was struck by I was I love the piece, but I, I was just struck by. This phenomenal audience turnout, very very passionate, and incredible discourse after the show about what it what it was about, and I, I I I just think that people are hungry for real contact, real interaction on issues, and and some of that can be accommodated, obviously, by twittering and and so forth, but I I, I think that um, the live forum is actually maybe going to be even that more that much more special you know and meaningful to people in in a in a dehumanized age you know where where i like I, it just cracks me up actually too that you know um so many people don't like. First, we had email, and now people want to text you because they don't want to talk to you. Mm. Like they want they want to talk to you, but they love texting because it's a way to engage, sort of without engaging. You know, so it's it's a there, there's so much ambivalence today about you know the art of communication and interaction that I just think we have this this fantastic opportunity in the theater to. Um, Force people in a seat to experience something they might either love or hate and respond to it and talk to each other about it. So um, I I think it's going to be a very good time in the future.
0: And that seems a good time to wrap up and say, Doug Abel, Artistic Director of the Vineyard Theater here in New York, thanks for being with us on
1: Downstage Center. Thanks for having me.
0: Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard, and our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from AmericanTheaterWing.org. If you're a regular listener or viewer, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our programs. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.